Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with former model, chaplain, crisis administrator, and author Earl Johnson about his new book, Finding Comfort During Hard Times, a guide to healing after disease, violence, and other community trauma. He shares some of his experiences comforting AIDS patients in the 1980s to handling the 9-11 aftermath at the Pentagon. He also recounts his years at the Red Cross, heading its expansion of crisis response teams. He also gives us some tips for handling life's tragedies. Earl, you have written a book, Finding Comfort During Hard Times. It couldn't have come out at a more opportune time. Talk about the book. Talk about what people would get if they started reading this book. What is your intention? Well, I'm I'm hoping to give people uh, some concrete suggestions on ways we can comfort one another. And now during this holiday season, uh, with so many uh, uh, intense reunions, um, with people struggling so deeply uh, as a result of these past two years with COVID, um, there is so much anxiety. So in the book, I I have tried to talk about um, my experience with disasters, including um, infection and and, uh, rampant disease pandemics, um, and and how you know knowledge about specifics, specific things that we can do um, to help one another get through this uh, very stressful time. That was the catalyst for writing this book. I spent ten years working in disaster services at the national headquarters of the American Red Cross. And I came in right after September 11th. Um, and that horrible day though, that and the, the time after and and just how people needed to be comforted. And, uh, uh, and I went through the aftermath of 9-11 
uh, the Hurricane Katrina's, uh, the Virginia Tech shootings, uh, other natural and human-caused disasters. And I worked with a great team. You don't have to do this by yourself, but that team specifically was prepared and responded to disasters. And the main purpose of that was reaching out and giving the emotional and spiritual support to people who were not only dealing with physical devastation, but also emotional and spiritual devastation. So um, we have to acknowledge that we were in a very hard time, a traumatic time, and and uh, there are concrete things in the book. Uh, each chapter ends with 10 ways of comforting people during the different stages of disaster. And, and I, I hope uh, your, our, your listeners will find those suggestions very helpful, uh, particularly around the holidays when um, our emotions and our spirits are uh, enhanced um, and, and just with the whole aspect of reunion and for some people, very painful anniversaries of, of spending the first holiday without a loved one. And, and so, uh, uh, my hope, uh, is, is that people will be comforted by what they find in the book and, uh, and that that will be reassuring because there is such a need for reassurance, um, at this particular time. There, there is difficulty not only because of the COVID uh, situation and our isolation and estrangement, but we add to that a political layer of uh, incivility, uh, and it makes these family reunions even more difficult. Would that be a correct statement? Oh, absolutely, because uh, one of the tenants uh, that I really uh, believe in is telling the truth. And it's hard to tell the truth uh, when there's so much, not only information because of social media, but there's also so much misinformation and disinformation. And we truly are polarized. And and the, the whole nucleus of that is, is the is the family unit um, where we're getting our news from different sources. Um, we have different sources of, of support and, and, and finding meaning, different meanings in the events for one another. And, and so we really, really need to be sensitive to one another. And, and sometimes um uh, the best thing to do to comfort one another is just because you're invited to a battle doesn't mean you have to attend. And uh, for some people, uh, that means uh, being peacemakers and perhaps uh, not completing our sentences or not uh, sharing, you know, uh, uh, our our. Uh, deeply personal stories and opinions with one another, particularly with, with those that, uh, whom we love and whom we've, we've shared a lifetime, uh, uh, because, uh, that compassion, uh, over the holidays and that, 
um, inner compassion for one another and and how we basically take care of one another and share our experiences and share our truth. Um, it's It's been a really, really traumatic time. And we have been isolated. And how we ease out of that isolation um, or in that, um, one of the primary ways we do that is the family um, holiday table um, and uh, coming together, um, you know, uh, uh, at the advent of a new year. So uh, uh, it, it, it may be a time to speak and a time to remain silent. Earl, I know you spent the the last 10 years of your active career uh, with the Red Cross uh, heading their efforts to expand crisis response teams. But but I want to go back and and share with our audience your life story a little bit leading up to that because it it has critical stages that that I would like to to discuss with you. Uh, as I understand it, born in Boonville, Missouri, uh, that's not a large town, I would take it, right? Uh, 7,000 friendly people <laughs> uh, and uh, right on the Missouri River. And, and yes, it was named after Daniel Boone. Um, and uh, uh, it, it was a, a rural childhood and Yes, I went to a one-room country schoolhouse. There may be generations of your listeners that also went to a one-room country schoolhouse. You know, I, I don't want to sound too much like Abe Lincoln, but uh, um, it, it was a, a, a rural childhood, and uh, we did have electricity. I, I did not have to read by candlelight, um, but it, it was a great nurturing environment. Um, my father was an auto mechanic, and he ran a truck stop on uh, I-70, and my mother uh, was a, a, a housekeeper and, and uh, a charity and church volunteer, and she supported my father in providing 24-hour service and care uh, to those who may have broken down and got stranded on the highway. And uh, uh, so it, it was a unique childhood uh, where both of my parents were in helping professions. Uh, my late sister ended up uh, as a nurse, and I ended up uh, in the ministry um, for my early years working in, in parishes. And uh, I think it all had to do with, with that you know, my childhood and, and seeing such a powerful example of, of community service, but also, uh, public service and, and, uh, um, people helping people, uh, who, uh, had problems and, and breakdowns. And so, uh, 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 I went to college in a small town very close to Boonville. I went to Central Methodist in Fayette, Missouri, and that was an even smaller town and a, a small liberal arts church-related college. Yet you ended up at Yale Divinity School. That was quite a jump. 
it was quite a jump, and I was counseled by people that that it would change me. That crossing the Mississippi River, I would never be the same. <laughs> I would be one of those damn liberals, excuse me. Uh, and uh, you sure it it uh, uh, was an opportunity, and and. Uh, um, I was quite concerned, and one of my mentors was Senator John Danforth of Missouri, who was our attorney general at the time before he joined the Senate, and he had been to Yale Divinity, and I went to Jefferson City, and I asked him, do you think I'm going to be over my head in New Haven, Connecticut? And he said, absolutely not. He said, the Divinity School is full of Midwesterners, so you'll feel right at home. Well, you went from that though, and and then started touring the the world. After that, working with Margaret Mead in Africa, uh, you witnessed some tragedies early on with the IRA bombings in London, and then uh, actually had a bomb on your bus in Israel. Uh, what was that sort of a wanderlust that you were uh, experiencing, or how did you think that you were? translating your ministry, if at all, to those projects? Well, blame it on the Rotary Club in Boonville, Missouri, because they would have these evenings <laughs> evenings of travelogues. And my mother would take me to see these wonderful slideshows of, of people who had traveled all over the world. Uh, there was a particular author, Richard Halliburton, uh, who my sixth grade teacher would read his stories about his travels around the world. And, and, uh, it, it, it did whet my appetite to travel and see the world. My junior year of college, I did spend a semester in London and, and, uh, uh I was a political science, international relations, uh, major at the time. And I was very curious. Uh, you know, I had survived. Uh, Vietnam and the great civil rights uh, 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 efforts of of my childhood and my college and and uh, uh, divinity school years and so many social justice movements and so being in places in the world where the headlines were you know would there ever be peace in the Middle East uh, uh, would there ever be peace between the the British and the IRA? And and so I, it, it wasn't disaster or political tourism, but I I really uh, was a seeker. I I sought to understand some of these tremendous um, um, conflicts, and and uh, uh, and I thought that that would help me also understand you know, just the nature of peacemaking and and blessed are the peacemakers, you know, how could we make peace in the world and and how that impact people locally because you would you would see uh, uh, so much death and devastation every night on the news and and uh, uh, you wanted to do something, I wanted to do something about it, I wanted to make a difference, uh, but I wanted to learn. I had a very keen interest in educating myself uh, so that I could be a leader, so that uh, I could uh, speak truth to power. And, and uh, uh, so I was very, very uh, privileged 
um, to work for Save the Children as an intern uh, during one summer uh, when I was in uh, New Haven. And, and they had a relationship with the United Nations and these, you know, huge global conferences of the 70s uh, that were about, um, you know, the environment and, and uh, uh, food and population issues and human settlements and, and just what we were going to do about rapid population growth and what we were going to do about the need for uh, housing and and climate change and the environment. And so uh, with the people at Save the Children, I got to go to these United Nations conferences and Margaret Mead was on their board of directors. And because I had traveled and I had gone to these conferences and knew the people who were um, uh, leading these organizations, Dr. Mead asked me to accompany her uh, to Nairobi and uh, uh, help her in, in one of the formative uh, years when we were trying to develop global plans for the environment, uh, for population issues, and 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 ha- and our habitat. So uh, and also food scarcity. So uh, what an opportunity! And and uh, you know, thanks to my my childhood. Um, I felt that I could do it. I felt that, you know, my parents had given me the ability to say yes uh, to opportunities and to challenges. So uh, it was more than wanderlust. It was more this, this thirst for knowledge. Then it seems just in looking at your bio and 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 looking at all that you've done, it was like a yo-yo effect, and that's my term, not yours. You went back to Missouri to become an associate pastor. Uh, you studied journalism at the University of, of Missouri. That's certainly not out there in, in any kind of global encounters. You went back home. I did. And and the purpose for that was, you know, I'd been to all these global conferences and I had done all this international travel. And uh, in a moment of reflection, I think one trip I had 22 takeoffs and landings. And some of those were very white knuckle, <laughs> you know, affairs of saying, you know, am I going to live sure. to, to the landing? And, and um, it all came down to translating all that I had learned to the local uh, community and how everything starts locally. And if all, all this, you know, important international knowledge couldn't be translated, you know, to, to my uh, family, my church, my community, um, uh, how could I tell the story? You know, what good was having all of this knowledge is if you couldn't use it uh, to try to make a difference. And, uh, you know, uh, 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 I I learned that you know a, a journey starts with a single step, and also uh, uh, telling my story locally. Um, so it was all about translating the experience to to the local um, community. 
then it seems, again, just looking on paper, that we have a, a divergent path. Uh, in the 1980s, you came out as a gay man, moved to New York, and through a series of circumstances, ended up becoming a model uh, with some international repute. That that seems to be so alien to what you had started doing. Well, it it did, and and you know so much of taking care of myself, paying my own way, um, um, you know, being going from being a, a, a local church uh, leader and up and coming uh, in my own faith group. Uh, and I was on the road to my own cathedral by the time I was 40. Uh, there's, there's no, uh, nothing ego driven uh, sometimes then, uh, you know, how one cultivates their personality and career. And I was deeply and personally unhappy and I knew something wasn't, uh, settled. And, and so, uh, I did come out as a gay man. Um, I did not do it while I was in a parish because to me, this was a deeply personal decision. And I did not during the eighties, it was still, um, uh, controversial. It's still controversial today uh, in the church, but uh, I, I I knew that that my unhappiness uh, uh, and and living a double life uh, would put me on the uh, on a not very hospitable road to the future. So working as a number of odd jobs, I went from the the altar at the Congregational Church of Manhasset to the tie counter at Brooks Brothers. Um, I was, uh, you know, one day serving community and, and the next day I was helping uh, customers pick out a shirt and tie. And and it, it was a journey of saying, you know, I, I have to have a job. Uh, I have to pay my way. Uh, I have to settle uh, uh, and, and, and see what my future might hold. And uh, a great friend from Divinity School who lived next door to a fashion stylist uh, suggested modeling as a potential career and uh, uh, helped me put together a portfolio. And uh, through a series, it was all luck, uh, in my opinion, but I was in the right place at the right time. And I was able to be anonymous. Nobody knew my backstory. And uh, I was the perfect 40 regular. So if your suit didn't fit, it was because, <laughs> you know, I, I had eaten a donut. And uh, uh, so I, I worked both as a fit model and as a commercial, and then eventually as a fashion model, um, as I had been invited to come to Milan for Fashion Week and uh, uh, through a series of very fortuitous uh, to events, uh, I was able to uh, uh, be marketed by my agency and uh, uh, in my career um, uh, as a minor celebrity uh, and being recognized uh, as a fashion model. Uh, 
it, it was also another type of education on the power of celebrity and the power of nonverbal communication and how people invest in one another uh, great power and 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 great you know un, um, different qualities that they project upon someone else and uh, and so it was fascinating to be in a very very creative environment with very talented and imaginative people many of them who also happen to be gay and i eventually found out many of them happen to uh, also be dying um, because my the year i came out was also the year that aids was discovered um, and uh, so my personal journey also merited uh, mirrored the 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 early years of the pandemic and losing a tremendous number of, of friends and acquaintances uh, to the AIDS pandemic. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You went back to the ministry in, in, in 1994 and, and worked at uh, the New York City Cabrini Medical Center. And in, in reading through your book, uh, Earl, that seemed to be a pivotal moment for you. Uh, that and you 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 mentioned several times in the book how that medical center was a, a change agent in your life. Uh, it absolutely was, and and going back into the ministry, uh, the main reason for that was that religion had been weaponized, and many of my colleagues and my patients had been disowned by their families and disowned by their religion. And, and religion was being used uh, not to help people get better or get well for, a, a, at that time, a terminal illness. And it was being used to, to make them feel worse and uh, being told that they were um, uh, guilty of unforgivable sins and that they were going to hell. And I use that as a catalyst to say, well, you know, my uh, understanding of God is is 
of love and of all embracing and, and uh, compassion. And, and so I, I sort of took that formation into the hospital rooms and, and I'd done some of my clinical training at Memorial Sloan Kettering and New York Hospital in their AIDS unit. And I was able to be with people as they were dying and support them um, uh, with this picture that God is love and, and that, that they uh, uh, should not fear the future, um, that, that they were forgiven. And I ended up, uh, after my clinical training, at a Catholic medical center where I was hired because I was Protestant and I was out as a gay man, and they were trying to support the emotional and spiritual needs of the patient as, while they were being treated uh, for an illness that would soon find um, uh, treatments that would extend uh, and expand their life expectancy. And uh, I worked with the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart, the Cabrini Sisters, uh, who uh, embraced me and, as they embraced their patients because Cabrini was one of the first hospitals to uh, open their doors to AIDS patients because to, if you remember the time, people were afraid to touch yes. door handles or, or drink from water fountains. And... Uh, right. um, you know, they for, forgot some of the um, images of, of Christ as the healer. Um, and and it, it was a, a, a tremendous opportunity. And, and uh, uh, I'm also always very appreciative to the uh, priest and sisters uh, at Cabrini, which is now closed, uh, uh, for... Uh, accepting me and employing me uh, to help people uh, in their end-of-life care, and also at Cabrini's Hospice, uh, uh, where I was also embraced and, and uh, uh, was able to, to work and support people uh, during their end stage of their life to give them a very dignified end and to help with their families and support their uh, loved ones. Earl, was that experience at, at Cabrini, did that solidify your thoughts about giving comfort during hard times? Uh, was it the genesis of those thoughts that matured over time? How would you describe those? Absolutely. Um, because, um, you know, to be the comforter, to, 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 um, uh, you know, to be, you know, to feed the hungry, to, to, you know, give a drink of water to those who are thirsty, you know, to support people who are in their end stage of their life, to give them a dignified death. Um, uh, how do you comfort in those extreme circumstances? Um, and and that was the genesis that... Um, uh, helped me understand uh, what it was like to comfort people uh, who were threatened uh, by disease and illness and death. Um, and, and sometimes 
um, that there weren't any, any easy answers, um, or but there was something that you could do. You could be present. You could be the compassionate, um, non-anxious presence and help support people. Uh, and I moved from Cabrini down to Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. on September 9th, 2001. I, I moved from Lower Manhattan because Cabrini was in Lower Manhattan uh, to Washington Hospital Center, and on my second day of work there, um, uh, I became very acutely aware of disaster uh, because uh, uh, victims and survivors from the Pentagon bombing or uh, our, our airplane. Uh, uh, impact came to Washington Hospital Center because it was the area burn unit. Um, so that was my second day of work. Did you apply what you had learned uh, in giving AIDS comfort to the 9-11 uh, victims and first responders and families? Was it similar or was it different? Absolutely. All the skills, the clinical training, clicked in, um, you know, uh, supporting people, uh, dealing with chronic or terminal illness, and supporting uh, people who had uh, just experienced a catastrophic mass fatality disasters. It was the same skill set. And so the skills and the experiences were transferable. And, and people always ask me, you know, what gives you experience to support people in disaster? What what what's your qualifications? And I say, well, I worked in the AIDS pandemic, and I I worked supporting people who were um, devastated by uh, uh, these uh, medical and 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 healing uh, disasters, and and. Uh, 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 you know, the the unanticipated grief for people dealing with unanticipated illness or, or people dealing with, with uh, planes falling out of the sky, uh, it, 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 those skills were transferable. And personally, I was also experiencing um, an extended lengthy illness and death of my sister, my only sibling. And I found... You know, every time I would go into a hospital room and see a middle-aged woman with cancer, I would be thinking of my sister, and I couldn't really be present to hear the, their story. And, and so I thought, well, you know, I need to start exploring other opportunities or other uh, chaplaincy settings where I can give emotional and spiritual support. And then 9-11 happened. And, and the work with Red Cross became so far more compelling um, in part because I could have that um, strategic distance um, between the survivors and, and those whom I would deploy to support them. And, and, it, and it, it, you know, as I said, the skills were very similar um, and and that's what I not only claimed, but I also was able to train people 
from a healthcare setting, I was able to, to train and recruit and screen them to work in these mass fatality disaster settings. Um, and, and so, uh, um, yes, the skills were transferable. And it also gave me a, a, a new mission, uh, uh, which, uh, you know, continues to this day as, as you know, I try to... Um, support those who are still uh, working in the uh, disaster arena, uh, but from the retirement setting and, and from the cabin in the Shenandoahs, uh, where I'm trying to practice self-care and uh, uh, self-compassion after experiencing all these traumatic events. Your time at the Red Cross, and, and as you said, you trained and and created crisis response teams. I mean, if people would think about that time, there were some humongous disasters within this country. There was the Hurricane Katrina and the Virginia Tech shootings, among other things, uh, during during that that period. And I take it that your teams would deploy to these scenes to to provide comfort. Absolutely. And and this was also a time of a great awakening because normally we just thought about disasters as physical damage. And we thought once that people are housed and fed or once people uh, get to rebuild their shelters, then everything is okay. And we learned that no, that is not the case. That even after the physical repairs have been made, the emotional and spiritual scars continue. And if unaddressed or underaddressed, uh, they compound the disaster and the disaster continues. And so these teams that I recruited were trying to with the disaster mental health colleagues, uh, we developed disaster spiritual care because there were so many mass fatalities. Um, no one anticipated 1,700 people dying on the Gulf Coast for a, a, a natural disaster like Hurricane Katrina and more people moving into harm's way into the Gulf Coast and and storms getting st- stronger and more widespread. So um, the need was there. The need was great. And and so the shift in our thinking um, also helped us uh, recruit the manpower um, and, 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 and send them to the sites of this great devastation. But we also knew that the more intense the disaster was, the more that people died in a disaster, or even your proximity to where the bomb went off or where the shooting was, you had all the, all of these walking wounded, all these people who were uh, suffering severe emotional and spiritual trauma. And, and I was a part of a great team, primarily of healthcare chaplains and, and mental health uh, workers that we were able to deploy immediately after the plane crash, after uh, the school shooting, uh, you know, after the tornado. And, and uh, they were there to set up services while people were working 
in feeding and sheltering. There were also counselors, trained counselors that were able to support people who had just dealt with these unanticipated uh, critical um, uh, mass fatality catastrophes. All of this obviously takes a human toll on you and and anybody in this field. Uh, you retired from the Red Cross in, in 2011 for some self-care, and we'll get to that in, in a moment. But what I was curious about, Earl, is in, in your book, uh, Finding Comfort During Hard Times, you have an appendix, which is your account of being called back five years after retirement to deal with the Pulse nightclub shootings in in Florida. My question is, is twofold. One, why did you do that? Why did you go back? And two, why did you feel compelled to add that to your book? Well, um, those were my people. Um, 49 primarily gay and lesbian um, victims of this mass murder. Um, and it was an honor to be called out of retirement, uh, to be thought about being an openly gay man, uh, being part of the team uh, that I would help manage uh, the spiritual care, not only of the survivors and the families of the victims and loved ones, uh, but I was also there to help support the responders and to manage um, services for them for emotional and spiritual support. So it was a great privilege to be called out of retirement and also um, to be thought of that I would have a sensitivity, a greater sensitivity um, uh, to a, a marginalized population, uh, the GLBTQ uh, community, uh, that I would uh, not be judgmental um, or I, I would add a, a, an extra layer of, of care uh, for those who had just experienced one of the most horrendous mass murders. And, and you see, we're, we're so consumed with the body count because that was the largest mass murder until the Las Vegas shootings. And, and, you know, uh, we, we tend to think in terms of numbers, but in my name, in my book, I give the names of all 49 victims, uh, because they have names, and you don't want right. to you don't want to give too much uh, publicity uh, to the perpetrator, uh, but to 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 uh, give your respects for those who whose lives were so devastatingly cut short, and who were part of a very majority of them were poor immigrants from the from. Um, Spanish-speaking countries, and and so they were already uh, another marginalized population. So uh, it, it was a great privilege to support that group and to, to be called out of retirement. I want to circle back to uh, your idea of self-care, uh, and, and you write about it in your book, and there was a, a recent article also uh, in uh, Next Avenue, 
uh, written by our colleague Beverly Jones about your tips. And and you boiled it down to six. I know you have 10 at the end of each chapter, but you boiled it down to, to six. And I'd like to, to just run through these if we could. And your first is acknowledging the trauma. To to have self-care, you have to acknowledge the trauma. Yes. Um, it, it, it's very important to know that this is not a normal time. This is not a normal experience that we've been having. And just realizing that it, it has been such a very, very hard time for everyone. Um, no one has been unimpacted by the COVID uh, pandemic. And, and, and so part of self-care is doing an honest assessment of where we are and what our needs are and, and uh, uh, what are some of the op- uh, uh, resources that we may have uh, for self-care. Uh, because I'm, I'm very rigid about this. If you want to help other people, you have to be able to help yourself. And, and so uh, that's primary. Like first, you know, find out just exactly what your situation is and acknowledge the trauma. And your second was to connect with trusted friends and relatives. And, you know, during this period of isolation, I have to confess that I have uh, not done that as much as I should. And I have sort of just languished in the isolation. Well, yes, exactly. And it it feels um, a bit weird to go out to a restaurant for the first time um, since, you know, uh, everything reopening. Um, and and it, it uh, you know, for the first family gathering, for many it was Thanksgiving, uh, or it will be Christmas, and and so, uh, uh, but that word trusted, um, because you, you want to, you don't want to be in a toxic environment, you don't want to be with toxic people, uh, for your first foray out into the world after COVID. So, ending that isolation. Um, you want trusted family and friends, and you may have to do that in small increments, but, 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 but it's essential uh, that you don't compound uh, the trauma or accumulating more trauma by being around the wrong uh, parts of your family and friends. The next two that you mentioned uh, were accept comfort from animals and spend time in nature. I'm going to combine those two because they're both non-human. Exactly. And, and we're very privileged, uh, you know, to be able to do that, to be able to, to uh, have, uh, well, nature can be a walk on a city street, but for me, it, it's uh, the Shenandoah Mountains of Virginia, and and I do that with uh, Sherman and Henry, my Welsh corgi and my poodle mix, uh, and they've been working overtime during this COVID uh, uh, pandemic, providing emotional and spiritual support for their owners, and uh, uh, they're also very therapeutic uh, and very healing. Um, uh, animals and environments. So not to be um, 
diminished in their importance. Your fifth one I found interesting, and that is not to forget to laugh. There, it, it's not. Some people have very a very dark sense of humor, or gallows humor, and and for the most part, it is inappropriate almost all times. Especially journalists, cops, exactly, <laughs> or emergency room doctors. Uh, but but you, you know you 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 find yourself perhaps giggling at, at inopportune moments. But but that sense of humor. Uh, you know, you know you're in trouble when you've lost your sense of humor, and and there has been so little to laugh about, uh, but there are these little bits of, of absurdities in, in life that you recognize. I mean, in Sunday's New York Times, there was an, uh, a full page of hunger uh, in Afghanistan and, and perhaps a million children dying of, of starvation. And on the opposite page was an ad for private jets and, and how your next trip needed to have uh, all this luxury and, and uh, th- these two uh, extremely diverse, uh, uh, diverse uh, uh, representations on opposite pages. Uh, you know, for a very sick person, it might have called you know, just to recall life's absurdity, but some people sort of, you know, did take an inappropriate chuckle of saying, you know, how silly and how absurd this was. The last one you talk about, I think, is important in my life anyway, and that is creating rituals, meaningful routines that you perform regularly. It's it's my interpretation of that. It's it's sort of getting back to some sense of normalcy. It is, and and the ritual of the family dinner for some, for some it's a dream, um, and 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 an impossible reality. Um, you know, we spent time working at a food bank, and 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 you just realize how much need and how much despair there is, but creating a ritual of trying to have a, a meal with your family or those who are available, or, or that ritual of a daily walk with, you know, down to the river with the dogs is a very meaningful and important uh, ritual that, that we have uh, uh, developed. And and so uh, whatever the ritual is, I. Uh, uh, we were at the funeral of my brother-in-law and, and this ritual of, of the children speaking and, and uh, of, of each uh, relative shoveling a, 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 some dirt into the grave. It, it, it was, you know, a, just a very, very powerful ritual uh, of, of celebration and farewell. And, and so sometimes these rituals are spontaneous uh, sometimes they come as a result of, of long and prayerful thought, um, but it's important to to uh, have these rituals in our lives, to develop them, to create them, and just realize that sometimes there really aren't any rules. Uh, if it has meaning for you, if it has meanings for your loved ones, then do it. Um, and 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 be present and and uh, uh, 
do what you can, uh, because that does help restore a sense of power and normalcy in your lives. And, and it gives structure where there may be none or where it may be absent just because of, of all of these past years' um, traumas. The book is Finding Comfort During Hard Times, A Guide to Healing After Disease, Violence, and Other Community Trauma. The author, Earl Johnson, our guest today. It's published by Roman and Littlefield. And Earl, uh, two quick questions. One, where do people find the book if they want to order it? Um, well, it, it's available. I'll put independent bookstores first and, and Amazon second. Uh, it's also in, uh, available as a as a ebook on Kindle or uh, on Audible. As you can download it as an audio book, you can listen in your car, and it's also uh, a CD. Uh, so it's in different formats, uh, but it's widely available, and I think uh, it's also available discounted um, on uh, websites. Uh, uh, now that, that want to sell more copies. The the book is full of tips. If you've gone through a, a period of trauma and are seeking comfort, I think everybody probably in reading it will come away with something different that's individualized to them. But one last question, Earl, what do you want people to take away from your book? Well, I, I want them to be hopeful. I want them to, to I want them to be to have a, this as a source of hope and and utility that that you know we have gone through an incredibly dark period. For many people, they will continue going through this because they've lost a loved one and all of us are grieving. Um, but what a gift it is to be able to comfort one another, uh, to be able to comfort your children, to be able to comfort your parents, um, your spouse. Um, but I, I want people to take away that there is hope and, and that um, hopefully the book will be a source of inspiration and hope uh, for those who uh, read it. Well, uh, you know, in your retirement and your uh, self-care, I hope you continue your journalistic activities. I, I think they're quite important, Earl. Thank you, Tom. I will. Today, we've been talking with former model chaplain and author Earl Johnson about his new book, Finding Comfort in Hard Times. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson 
at ohio.edu. That's Hudson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.